This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today's episode features a conversation with Meta Parlikar. Meta Parlikar is a co-founder and chief technology officer of Casper Labs. She has more than 30 years of tech experience and she is one of the top women leaders in blockchain. She's a prolific speaker, having spoken at several global conferences, including Davos, LA Blockchain Summit, NFT LA, and many others. Meta is a mentor and has worked with organizations including Stronger to elevate and encourage women in blockchain tech. A quick note, Meta and I recorded this episode right before some really big things happened in the crypto world, like the crypto crash in December of 2022, when it was revealed that the notorious crypto entrepreneur, investor, and billionaire SBF, or Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder and CEO of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX and the associated trading firm Alameda Research, was discovered to have likely committed massive fraud. The discovery led to a high-profile collapse of the crypto industry, resulting in Chapter 11 bankruptcy in late 2022, and a massive shake to the crypto industry writ large. Things might have changed in the crypto world a bit since then, but even so, neither blockchain technology or the place of cryptocurrencies in the financial industry seem to be going anywhere. And I think that the conversation that I had with Meta stands up to time. So now, here is my conversation with Meta. Hi, Meta. Hey, Deb, how are you? I'm well, thank you. This is really exciting for me. I read over your bio when when Donna asked if we wanted to record, and I was just really excited to connect with you. There's so many questions that I have for you. But in preparing for this interview, I, I wanted to understand a little bit more than I already do about blockchain. So I know that the internet is full of rabbit holes and many, many disagreements about what terms and what ideas mean or what a certain thing is to begin with. But blockchain seems to me in my uh, hours of uh, researching what it was that I could talk with you uh, fluidly about it, it just seems like blockchain has a particularly high number of rabbit holes into many explanations and many disagreements about what the term means or what it is as an idea, what the applications are, what the general vision for blockchain is. So maybe we could start off with a very basic question for those of us who are uninitiated. What is blockchain? Yeah, that's a that's a big question. And I think there's a lot of information or education for folks um, about blockchain that still needs to happen. I like to think of the internet as an information protocol. And thanks to the internet, as we know, there's so much information out there, right? And when you juxtapose blockchain against the internet, I think of blockchain as a trust protocol. Any information that passes through the blockchain can be trusted. And this is because it's not possible to rewrite history on the blockchain which is what makes the first use case of blockchain possible, which is cryptocurrency. We can dive into you know, the details of how a blockchain works, but those are really mechanics, right? Like when you, you, when you separate you know, the how from the what, right? So what is a blockchain? It's ultimately, I consider it to be a trust protocol. It allows parties that don't trust each other to have an intermediary, which in today's finance is a third person like an escrow agent right? Instead of having an escrow agent, you have the blockchain. So it provides this, you know, intermediary or trusted 
environment in which things can happen. Okay, so let me see if I understand this correctly. What blockchain does is, a, is it's a kind of set of securities and it creates a portal or pathway into another agent's uh, trust so that you have a connection between two parties who may not necessarily share the same kind of like a trust structure. Can you say a little bit more about what you mean by the creation of that kind of bridge between these two trust parties? How does that happen? I know that we don't want to get into the nitty gritty of the technological, but maybe you could just share a little bit about what kinds of things happen in order to build that trust on a technical level. Yeah, for sure. So let's say you and I want to transact with each other, but we don't trust each other. We would engage the services of a third party individual, like an escrow agent is an excellent example in the purchase of a home, right? Now, if you want to basically eliminate that escrow agent, you need somebody that is neutral, independent, that can verify what's being transacted between the two parties, right? And that's really what the blockchain does. It's a collection of individuals that communicate with each other through a common language, which we call a protocol. The technical term is a protocol, a, a common language by which they validate a set of transactions from people they don't know, right? So the participants don't know each other. They don't know who's participating in the blockchain or whose transactions are. So they're very neutral, right? And they validate the transactions according to a common language, which is the protocol. So there's many, many blockchain protocols out there. The two biggest are Bitcoin, the Bitcoin protocol, and the other one is the Ethereum protocol. Uh, Casper, which is the protocol that I developed in collaboration with my team, is another protocol. And they all speak very specific languages. They have a few things in common. I would say one of the things they have in common is it's a peer-to-peer -peer network. A decentralized public blockchain will involve individuals that can come and go whenever they want. They don't need each other. They don't know each other. They don't have to ask permission from anybody to participate. They can just come and go as they wish. And they can participate in this protocol and be rewarded by the protocol for participating. And in exchange for participating, they receive some token and persons that want to take advantage of this infrastructure pay for its use in the form of token, which is a native currency or a native cryptocurrency to that protocol, right? It's kind of part of the language of that protocol. And so... The way this happens in terms of the mechanics, it's really underpinned by the participant set is fluid. They don't have to ask anybody. They can come and go as they wish, right? These are the cornerstones. If you think about it and you say, well, I want to start up this escrow service, but I'm only going to let my best friends in. You're really not going to trust the service much, are you? Because it's like, well, I'm mad at you and all your buddies. Like, how do I know you guys aren't going to agree to do this shady stuff? So being decentralized and permissionless is really, really important because now anybody can come and go. So you have some guarantees that come with that, right? They're not in a cabal. They're not colluding. They're following the protocol faithfully and the protocol enforces this. And that's where the trust comes is that the transactions independently verified by all of these random people, right? So that's where the trust comes from. Okay. So I'm, I wanted to go back to this escrow metaphor that you gave, because this is really interesting. You know, in a traditional, maybe 50 years ago context, you would have an individual being the arbiter 
to uh, mediate between two parties. So is blockchain what rose up when we got rid of these individual mediators? Is this kind of an information system that's taking the place of older forms of mediation that used to be done by, for example, a trained professional? Or is blockchain adding something new that these older intermediaries did not necessarily provide. I guess the question here is what is it in our information ecosystem currently that blockchain is responding to? Is it that our intermediaries as people are no longer a kind of a, a profession that people are uh, going into as a workforce? Or is this a response to a change in our technological environment? Or is it somewhat of both? That's a great question. So I think it's answering the call for a lot of different questions. I think if you wanted to, or a lot of different problems rather, but I think if you wanted to distill it down to like one of the big reasons that kind of forced the emergence or prompted the emergence of Bitcoin, right? Or this notion of a cryptocurrency, it's really that it is money at the speed of the internet, right? So if you think about right now, the, the fiat system and the you know, theoretically, the gold dollar upon which is based on or the banking system upon which our economy operates today is very, very slow. If you want to send money to another country, you have to do it through the SWIFT system. It takes three days. If you want to get a letter of credit because you want to uh, conduct business in another country, getting a letter, letter of credit can take up to 30, 35 days. It is incredibly painful to do business in a global world using the current financial system, right? I can send Bitcoin to another person at any denomination. It really doesn't matter what the denomination of Bitcoin is because the technology doesn't care about the amount you send. It's just a number, right? It's just a number. So if I'm going to send one Bitcoin or 100 Bitcoin, the Bitcoin blockchain doesn't care at all. It's just sending Bitcoin. So the transaction overhead goes way down. The speed with which I can send large sums of money using Bitcoin goes way down. So it's a lot faster. I can transmit Bitcoin to anywhere in the world and it will arrive with guarantees securely maximum within 18 to 20 hours, right? If I want to send $100 million worth of gold bullion, if we were to equate Bitcoin to gold as digital gold, it will take over four weeks. And at tremendous expense to put that gold to securely transport it, put it on a ship and get it to its destination, right? And so when you think about the speed at which commerce is happening now in this digital world, there really isn't truly a digital currency. And this is what blockchain really rose up to solve, right? And we already see that people will opt to send transactions, you know, send money digitally to other countries using Bitcoin or Ether because it's a lot faster. It's a lot more convenient. It's a lot less hassle than dealing with a wire from bank A to bank B. All I need is an address and I can send, send the Bitcoin or Ether very quickly, right? So this is like one of the core, core problems that cryptocurrency kind of e e emerged, right? The creators, there's a lot of theories about Satoshi Nakamoto, the creator of Bitcoin, a lot of theorists believe that he actually invented several types of digital cash, that there was these initiatives to create digital cash, right? And they finally figured it out with, with cryptocurrency and the, and the Bitcoin blockchain. I guess I'm, as I'm listening to you talk, it seems like the slowness is an impediment for people to get things done, the slowness of traditional financial systems. But it also seems to me that the slowness is not just uh, slowness 
because it's encumbered by bureaucracies, which of course it is, but also the slowness of building in all of these security systems so that the financial dimension uh, is stable, so that the financial system is safe, so that the financial system has a bunch of protections built into it. This uh, episode may not air for a couple of months, so I'm a little hesitant to ask the question, but I think that it's enough of an ongoing question that it, perhaps the question will be relevant regardless of when folks are listening to this. Right now, we're looking at a moment where there seems to be a lot of instability in cryptocurrencies precisely because of concern about some of these questions. Can you talk a little bit about how this new digital currency movement, which tries to overthrow some of the encumbered uh, bureaucratic dimensions may respond to or may be challenged by some of the safety, security, and protections that are built into our uh, current financial system? Right. So the current financial system, the safety and security that we get are imposed or imposed by external parties, right? Because they're controlled by central entities such that are highly regulated, right? We talk about, you know, uh, the financial industry is being highly regulated and the controls are coming into the industry from the outside in. They're external controls such as regulation, auditing, right? Even like the transparency you get when you're investing in a public company, they have to release reports. And all of those controls are external to the system. They're external controls because the system itself is not secure, right? And even in the case where you have all these external controls, they can still be gamed, they can still be manipulated, they can still be, you know, bribed, right? The, the, these problems still exist because you have a group of entities or individuals that are exerting these external controls on the system. The system itself is not inherently secure and it's not inherently transparent. It's not, it doesn't have these controls or these, these properties inherent to the system itself, right? So, What's the difference between the current financial system when you talk about safety, security, and transparency? It's that these are controls exerted upon by external authorities, centrally controlled authorities. These are not authorities that the individual has any control over, right? Whereas with blockchain, the properties of blockchain technology are inherently secure, transparent, and decentralized, right? And because of that, the external controls are not really required, right? So when you talk about like, what controls are needed externally around blockchain? And I've, I've gone on record saying that regulation is coming. I do believe that in any emerging technology, you're going to have a lot of scams, right? You're going to see a lot of scams. You're going to see a lot of people experimenting and innovating. And there is going to be people that get hurt as a result of that. But make no mistake, like fiat currency is used a whole heck of a lot in fraudulent and illegal activity. There's plenty of what we call white collar crime that happens with credit cards, checks, right? There's how many schemes have you talked about where there's professional entire entities set up in other countries external to, you know, where the scam is being executed on where people are being scammed, right? So this happens all over, right? All over the world. And so blockchain, like any other emerging technology is going to go through this phase. But I believe the technologies fundamentally, inherently more secure, more transparent, right? And, and very scalable for the future world. And I think banks see this, financial institutions see this. They never had to go through any kind of upending with the internet, right? When I look back at the internet, and I, I kind of grew out of the internet. I was there 
you know, very much in my technology career when the internet was just starting out, you know, back in 19, well, started out much earlier, but 1995, 1990 to 2000, when the dot-com boom happened, we saw people were afraid to put their credit cards into browsers. We saw that there was scamming happening around that. And we saw the internet really upend two big industries, maybe three, right? Information, right? Which you think about newspapers, print media, or content. I talk about a broadly content digital content of any kind, music, video, and print media. And we also saw it upend commerce. And businesses in these two verticals had to fundamentally shift the way they did business. It wasn't like an incremental shift. It was a fundamental transformation of the way they looked at the customers, the way they distributed their products, the goods and services, and the way they monetized, you know, or made money off of those goods and services. And I believe blockchain is going to fundamentally upend both the legal sector and the financial and fintech sector, financial services, right? Banks and financial institutions did not see a fundamental shift with the internet. Their backend systems more or less functioned exactly the same. You saw online banking, you saw e-bills e or bill pay, but that was really it. The back office did exactly the same. And I think with this innovation, with blockchain, they see the writing on the wall as a fundamental shift in the way they operate their back offices and they see a fundamental shift in the way they need to innovate, or they're just going to be left behind, right? And public blockchain is just going to come in and, and replace all that infrastructure. So they are definitely adopting this technology. I think they see the writing on the wall. You talked a little bit earlier in your answer to my last question about the uh, need for regulation and the regulations you see emerging. Can you talk a little bit about what kinds of regulations you would want to see and what kinds of regulations you think that cryptocurrencies, blockchain need right now in order to uh, minimize the amount of scamming and the amount of underbelly of uh, grifting that happens that I think takes up a lot of the uh, headlines about blockchain, cryptocurrency? Yeah. You know, so like, I do believe that innovation needs to continue. I believe this is an extremely important technology. I believe that there needs to be a space where projects can incubate and thrive. I believe it's actually, you know, a bit of a national security concern for the United States to not participate in a blockchain. So I urge lawmakers and individuals alike to get informed about this technology and to participate in the legislative process as we figure out what the rules and regulations need to be. And they are reaching out. Lawmakers are reaching out across the globe uh, to folks in the, in, in the space, in the industry to get educated first and foremost, so they can come up with sensible regulation. Because I think shutting it out isn't going to help um, because there will be other jurisdictions that are opening their arms to it, right? And so all you see is a flight of capital. Uh, you see a brain drain. You see innovation going offshore. And, and we really don't want that, right? We want to stimulate responsible innovation. So I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is, is I think consumers need to get really, really need to get educated about cryptocurrency and definitely do your own research, right? Uh, to avoid being scammed. Similarly, like if my daughter gets a link on her phone, don't click the link, right? Like there's scams everywhere and scam artists are always evolving. They're always looking for the next layer, the next level of innovation and technology as well in terms of how to, you know, more sneakily scam us out of our money. And they do it, you know, with check fraud and wire fraud as well as with crypto. So the most important thing I encourage people to do is to get educated. And I think having a clear framework of what is a scam and trying to go after and report these kinds of scams is extremely important for consumer protection. 
I think that's, and that's, that's really, really important. And I've, you know, told my fellow members in crypto that we have to, as a community, come together and be responsible with what we're putting out there, right? So I think individual responsibility is extremely important as an innovator. Um, we need to think about the broader impacts in society around what we're building. And, and I definitely, you know, feel that weight on my shoulders uh, with what I've built in terms of the technology and how it's going to be used. So, I mean, that's my stance, you know, really on regulation and education. Yeah, I can't disagree with any of those things. I can't disagree that we definitely want to encourage innovation, that we also want to encourage literacy by the public, and we also want to encourage responsible production. But I don't know that any of those three things constitute uh, regulations or legislation. Sometimes I worry that when we say, let's let's build in ethical conduct uh, within the industry, that's a way to kind of redirect or or take a duck from the fact that legislation and regulation ought to maximally operate by way of inviting critics and people who want to, in a sense, put some brakes on the industry as well as industry insiders. Because if you have industry insiders, people who are in the leadership uh, making that kind of legislative decision process uh, on their own, then it tends to work out in terms of favoring the advantage of those who are in the industry not building in protection. So could you talk a little bit about what kinds of regulation, kind of legislation, what kinds of policies might be developed around blockchain and how that would help stop some of the grifting and some of the uh, bad use cases that we're seeing coming up? Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple of things to unpack here, right? So the first thing is you're talking, you got to talk about jurisdictions, right? One of the challenges, the real challenges with crypto is that it crosses jurisdictions. Um, it's very, very hard to regulate what cryptos are being purchased if they're offered in uh, outside jurisdiction, right? So that's a real challenge, which is why I talk about literacy a lot, right? You need to understand what it is you're purchasing. The other piece of it is like the SEC is taking, taking steps right now to actually crack down on, on blockchains and protocols that are constituted as security. So there is a framework, I believe that the SEC is taking steps to try to protect consumers and go after projects that are trying to engage in fraudulent activity. But what's happening is, is they are, because there is no regulation around, can we incubate a legitimate project? It's actually stifling everything, right? Because the, what's happening is the good actors are too afraid to act and the bad actors don't intend to adhere anyway. So they're just going to do what they want to do. They'll just take it offshore, right? So when we talk about consumer protections, it's really bound by the jurisdiction, right? We can't really control what somebody's doing in Nigeria or what somebody's doing in Estonia or some of these other. And because, you know, decentralized exchanges are broadly available, it's very, very hard to say to a consumer, well, the SEC is going to crack down on this jurisdiction that they have no control over, right? So this is like a wrinkle. It's a, it's a legitimate wrinkle. And you really can't block people's access to decentralized exchanges, right? Because how, how do you block their access to it, right? You can't, right? So you can talk about IP whitelisting and you can try, you can try to do these things, but these are all very easily sidestepped, right? Very, anybody with just a little bit of technical know-how can sidestep them. If they really, really want to go do this, they can go do it. So, I mean, this is why I feel like the SEC is already cracking down on bad projects. I think recently, I mean, this will be old news for your, uh, for your listeners later, but they just cracked down on nine projects and, you know, in, in the United States, the SEC came after them. 
And it's clear that these projects did not follow best practices, right? They didn't, they weren't uh, very conscientious of what they were doing and prop and rightly deserved, you know, to have the SEC come after them. And, but I feel like good projects, like, you know, I like to think that what Casper has built and what Casper Labs is working on, we've tried to do everything right, right? We've tried to do everything right, but we have had to domicile in Switzerland, right? And why do we have to domicile in Switzerland? We didn't want to. We had to because Switzerland gave us regulatory clarity. They told us what the definition of a token is. They told us under what rules we could go ahead and, and create this technology to create, create the protocol and, and, and go through the process. So the kind of regulation I would like to see really is a framework under which innovation can happen safely, where you can partner with a regulator and make sure that you're in compliance. And if there's clear rules around this is what you're on the hook for, right? These are the rules you need to follow if you're issuing a token. These are the kind of disclosures you need to provide to consumers. This is what the KYC rules are for consumers that want to participate, right? So you can make it accessible to consumers because what happens today in the United States is you have to be a Regulation D accredited investor in order to participate in these kinds of instruments. And what it effectively does is it locks out anybody that makes less than $200,000 a year. And that's where the real money is to be made, right? It's one of the reasons why the rich get richer and the poor don't, don't get richer, right? Is because they're effectively locked out of any of these investment schemes and any of these investment vehicles. And I would very much like to see a way for people to get literate, to get, in, get connected with these kinds of projects so they can participate even at a small amount, $25, $50, a small amount, so they can have an opportunity to take some risk and participate in some upside, right? Because right now they're completely locked out of it. Does that make sense? I think so. I think so. More questions, but maybe uh, we should backtrack a little bit because I'm really interested in how you got interested in blockchain. I thought maybe I could ask you to share with the audience how you came to blockchain, what, what your vision for blockchain was when you started, and what compelled you to want to direct your career in that area. Yeah, so blockchain kind of found me, you know, like most of my career, the internet kind of found me, cloud computing and what they call Web2 or the dynamic internet kind of found me. And similarly, blockchain found me. But once I learned about the technology, I became extremely intrigued. And the reason for it is because I've been watching what's happening with global currency and how governments have been manipulating their currencies, right? And so the qualitative easing where the Fed is printing money, the going off of the gold standard in 1971 has really created a huge disparity, right? Like whenever the government prints money, it's basically universal basic income for the rich, right? Because the rich have hedged against, they have inflationary hedges. They have purchased real estate. They have purchased fine art. They have purchased gold. And they've been able to basically use these kinds of investment vehicles to hedge against inflation because there's a fixed quantity, there's a fixed supply, and as the currencies become devalued, the price of these you know, goes to the roof. And this is why we're seeing homeowner affordability going down right, um, over, over the past couple of generations. And so I find it extremely problematic. And I see blockchains and public blockchains and cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin as a viable and essential alternative for the individual. right? And furthermore, like whenever you decentralize something, you ultimately have more value created for the collective. Right. So if you look at the decentralized nature of content on the Internet, like Medium and YouTube as examples, right, this has allowed individuals to share their thoughts, ideas and even skills. And 
connect consumers and creators in a way that wasn't possible before to where you see now this creator economy, right? You see influencers and creators basically sharing their ideas and making money as a result of it. And I think that's a wonderful example of the overall like massive value that blockchain can ultimately create and also encourage people to start saving their money, right? To start saving their value. And we see this culture happening in the blockchain and the crypto community where this notion of hodling or holding onto my crypto because it has real value versus a consumeristic society where I got to buy this today because I don't know if I'll be able to tomorrow or I got to buy it today because it's going to be more expensive tomorrow. I believe that I want to participate in a technology that enables people to you know, kind of shift their thinking towards much more of a creator and sustainable economy where we're saving and building for the future versus just spending with a devaluing currency, right? Basically currency being just devalued right out from under us. Can you talk a little bit about Casper Labs specifically? You're one of the co-founders of Casper Labs and you're the CTO. What was uh, Casper Labs trying to do? Or what was your vision of what Casper Labs could do when you uh, founded Casper Labs? Our goal was really to create a, pro, you know, a professional software company that was focused on servicing businesses, right? And, and the reason we wanted to focus on this is we saw a lot of the decentralized communities out there like Ethereum. At the time, it was Ethereum and Cardano. There was just a couple. It wasn't nearly as big a playing field as it is today. And what we saw is it was a, it was a thriving and robust decentralized community, but we didn't really see how enterprises or uh, companies would fit into that equation, Right. We saw that very anarchist, uh, kind of an upending of the status quo, which I don't disagree with. I do believe that there's a space for that. But I also believe that consumers will really reap the benefits of blockchain when companies adopt it and make available those benefits to consumers, right? So if I'm going to buy my jug of milk and I want to get more clarity on the supply chain for that jug of milk and know it came from that farm in California, it's going to be a company that's going to build that, right? It's going to be a company that's going to adopt the blockchain and provide me that transparency. And so we built a protocol that would service those needs because we believe this is how consumers are ultimately going to get access to the benefits of blockchain. And can you tell me a, a little bit about the challenges that you faced in building it? Well, you talked about lack of regulatory certainty, right? So that's definitely been a big challenge for us. Um, education is another. Um, you know, when we talk to these companies, a lot of them don't know anything about blockchain. When we talk to developers, you know, they may not be aware of blockchain. So education is a big, you know, and blockchain literacy and the value proposition of what we build vis-a-vis -vis the other blockchain protocols is a big, is a big challenge. And there's a lot of misinformation out there about blockchain, right? Like literacy about even what projects are good and what projects are bad and, you know, what is real. There's a lot of definitions, as you rightly indicated, that are not clear, right? What is a transaction on a blockchain? Does speed matter on a blockchain? How do you know one blockchain is secure and the other blockchain isn't secure? So there's a lot of education and literacy and mis misinformation out there that we are working through. I was browsing your website and uh, it seems like the focus of the ethic behind Casper Labs is this idea of decentralization. Can you talk a little bit about what decentralization means, not as a procedure, but as an ethic? Oh yeah, as an ethic, this is, this is great. So ethically speaking, I think decentralization is incredibly powerful, right? Because now you've got this collective consciousness, 
right? It's not, it's not a single person that is deciding or making the rules. And that's what's wonderful about blockchain. When you think about decentralization, like in that way, is that anyone can choose to participate whenever they want, right? It doesn't have any borders. It's diverse, right? It connects people. These, this notion of these decentralized communities that form around a blockchain, these blockchains actually are like countries, right? They have their own culture. They have their own ethos. They have their own philosophy, right? They have their own, like they have this, they really have this consciousness about them, right? And I think that's a really, like, it's a really amazing thing when you see, as you see these communities kind of evolving around these blockchain and these shared themes, right? And and this is how these blockchains are ultimately governed. Like if you look at Bitcoin, the ethos of Bitcoin, even though it's decentralized, has actually, it, it's evolved. There's been this evolution around what is a Bitcoin maximalist. If you're part of the Bitcoin community, you have these shared, this shared vision and these shared set of beliefs, right? And nobody decided, it wasn't one person that just said, well, this is what Bitcoin is, right? It kind of just evolved in its own. I think that's a really powerful, a powerful concept when you think about how communities have evolved in the past. Even if you talk about think about religious communities, right? It's always been very top down. This is really like ground up, and it's it it evolves on its own. It takes a life on of its own. So I think that's a really powerful concept that you only see in this decentralized, you know, blockchains. Yeah, I wanted to ask the question because there was something specific that I saw on your website about decentralization as an ethos. I'm actually going to quote the website here. It reads, look around from governments to financial institutions, from public utilities to private entities. Today's world is highly centralized. Most of the wealth, resources, and influence have grown concentrated in the hands of the relative few. We believe that the systems in place today have done a tremendous amount to advance the world, but we hold a firm belief that there is a better way. The way we see it, decentralization is the cornerstone of democratization. It's how we will create more open, transparent, permissionless networks powered by people, paving the way for a new era of equitable innovation. To build systems that can support a decentralized world, we knew that we had to start with decentralization ourselves. For the Casper Labs team, decentralization is more than a product feature. It's the foundational ethos we share. So that's what the website says. So, okay, I, I understand the vision in general, but I think that I could almost take that statement that I just read word for word and attribute it to the people who envisioned Web 2.0 with the idea of democratizing the internet in decentralized ways. For example, in Infotopia, uh, which I looked at in preparation for today, Cass Sunstein's landmark uh, book on Web 2.0, he describes the vision of Web 2.0 as, and I'm going to quote, the book here, collaborative production characterized by decentralized decision-making directed by often non-monetary prices rather than central planners in business or development. There's a, another book that I looked at, Wikonomics, How Mass Collaboration Changes by Don Tapscott and Anthony D. Williams, who argue in that book, published in 2006, again, the book is Wikinomics, How Mass Collaboration Changes Everything, that the economy of the new web, by which at that point they meant web 
2.0 depends on mass collaboration, on the principles of openness, peer sharing, acting globally outside of traditional institutions in ways that would enable individual creators to work and create and make money outside of corporate or government structures. Again, trying to get out of that kind of hierarchy by decentralization. Of course, we know how that turned out because it turns out that the individual creators leverage their creations into massive conglomerates and corporations that now very much have centralized the entire financial composition of our world. Yeah, about five, right. There's, there's about five people, right? five entities controlling everything. That's exactly right. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So we have to go further, right? Wait, so, well, <laughs> well, just to finish the thought here, I mean, we have individual creators like Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey becoming new versions of the overlords that they championed overthrowing. So I feel like I've kind of seen, uh, so to speak, this movie before. Yeah. I'm a little skeptical that the remake will turn out fundamentally differently from the original version. The utopian vision of Web 2.0 didn't turn out too well, or at least in the vision that those who had created it had proposed. And I believe that those who champion Web 3.0 authentically believe in what they're envisioning. But why should people believe? that Web 3.0 with all of its utopian rhetoric will turn out differently from the original film. Yeah. So one of the cornerstones of the internet, when Tim Berners-Lee originally you know, conceptualized the internet, he actually conceptualized what we call a peer-to-peer network, right? And that actually is not the architecture of the internet today. Uh, the architecture of the internet today, even Web 2.0, it's client server. So you have centralized servers behind Twitter, right? There's this big server farm and Twitter controls all the data and all the interactions that are happening on Twitter. It's not a peer-to-peer network. A peer-to-peer network is BitTorrent, right? Which, by the way, even though content creators have aggressively gone after copyright infringement, right, they have not been able to shut down BitTorrent. BitTorrent is still running today. BitTorrent has been running for 25 years. BitTorrent was around in the early 90s um, uh, when I (laughs) came familiar with it. When I worked at mp3.com, BitTorrent was a viable way in which people shared files and music and other content. So it's still there. And that's because it's truly a decentralized peer-to-peer network, right? Similarly with Bitcoin, we see governments like China attempting to shut down Bitcoin. They've not been able to shut down Bitcoin, right? And I think the fundamental difference is that the architecture of the internet is fundamentally client server. It is not peer to peer, right? There wasn't a way to scale out the internet in a peer to peer fashion, but Tim Berners-Lee, his original vision was that it would be peer to peer. So the difference is is the architecture of blockchain technologies is that they are fundamentally peer to peer. Now, one of the challenges that we're currently facing, and I'll be very open and honest about this in blockchain technology is Silicon, right? It's slow. Blockchain technology today is slow because our infrastructure upon which it is running is slow. And that I mean by that, I mean bandwidth. I mean, you know, getting 100 megabits download or one gigabit download isn't going to be fast enough such that you can run Twitter on a a truly decentralized peer-to-peer blockchain. Do I see that changing in the next 10 to 15 years? Yes, I do believe that I see that changing in the next 15 to 20 years to where these blockchain networks will be able to run at ultra high speeds such that you can actually have decentralized social media, truly decentralized social networks where individuals can choose to interact and interface with web properties and hold on to their own data, right? These applications are already being built. We just need to wait for Silicon to catch up. And similarly, like, you know, I worked at mp3.com back in 1999 and we saw web streaming. We saw 
Shazam. We saw, you know, Apple Music in terms of the vision, right? But there wasn't enough Wi-Fi bandwidth to make it a reality, right? It was only the creation of mobile that made it a reality. Do I see decentralized Uber? Absolutely see decentralized Uber. Uber probably sees decentralized Uber, right? It will be very, very easy for me at some point to just connect with a driver and just have that interaction directly with the driver using the blockchain. Whereas reputation will be on the blockchain, the transaction will be conducted via token. I won't need to use a fiat on off ramp. I won't need to use a credit card. It will just happen on a blockchain and I'll just give him tokens in exchange for his services. I see it as clear as day um, because the infrastructure backing it will also be peer to peer. So just to clarify, you think the problem with Web 2.0 was not the vision in and of itself. It was the technological limitations that allowed for the vision to come to fruition. There's another way of reading it, of course, which is this idea that decentralization is a kind of utopian ideal. But what tends to happen is that financial dimension becomes so lucrative and players tend to, just as a kind of personality defect, perhaps for human beings at large, become monopolistic, want to uh, gather as much financial resources as possible. And the financial incentives are built so that in, in this particular structure that we're in now, even as decentralized as it may be, you have a kind of a mass of uh, wealth in the power uh, of very few individuals. And that, one could argue, is is still happening, even with blockchain or cryptocurrencies where you're seeing individuals amass a lot of wealth, the people who are investing $50 are not doing so well. Yeah, there's no question about it, right? So like, I'm not saying I'm not utopic. I'm like, I'm not thinking that this is going to be the silver bullet that solves everything. I believe it will be a shift in, a, in the right direction, right? So right now, my goal from what I see is you can't participate in any kind of alternative investment vehicle in the United States unless you make a minimum of $200,000. That locks out literally 95% of the population, right? So even if they wanted to, they couldn't participate, right? Bitcoin and Ethereum have gone some way in making that easier because now people can choose to invest a little tiny bit every week if they want to via tools like Coinbase, right? Or Robinhood. And I think that's a step in the right direction because Bitcoin isn't going to lose its value in the very long term, right? One could argue about the viability of Bitcoin, but so far it's been the best performing asset in the past 10 years, right? And it's now much, much more accessible to these individuals than say, you know, an IPO, right? Or an early stage venture capital because they're not Reg D certified, right? And similarly, like having a lot of this infrastructure to allow people to find alternative ways in which they can save their wealth. I think is massively important in this day and age, right? So people have some opportunities to create wealth where they didn't before. So what is the ultimate vision for blockchain? Oh man, um, that's a great question. So if I had to like put it in a nutshell, I'm like, you know, just imagine being able to trust the outcome of an election. But like, if you want to talk about real vision, transparency, trust, I put my vote, it goes on the blockchain. I can see my votes on the blockchain. I can see, I have guarantees that it's immutable. I don't, I'm not second guessing who controls that blockchain because it's transparent in terms of who the participants are. Like, if you just want to say like, what would be like the most amazing outcome is that we can trust an outcome of an election, right? I think that's like one of the big cornerstones of our society, right? 
I've also mentioned like moving from consumerism to saving and building value instead, right? Where people can actually have their money retain its value instead of it being diluted, right? That dilution that happens every time the Fed prints money is extremely detrimental to people that are living with no investments, right? If you don't have an inflation-proof investment, guess what? You're in trouble if the Fed's print because the Fed is printing money and your dollar is worth less and less and less each time they do that. And so I think, you know, having the real value of money being sustainable is massively important, right? It fundamentally shifts what we're doing as a society. I know that Casper Labs works with governments around the world, most recently China, a government that many other governments do not trust for reasons that range from stolen IP to data privacy to human rights violations. You talked a little bit earlier in our conversation about blockchain as a kind of value proposition that uh, provides a layer of trust between parties that don't trust each other. What are some of the challenges with working with governments that don't fundamentally trust each other in the context of a technology whose aim is building trust? So it's very interesting. Like, so the funny thing is in, in, within governments and what we're observing as we work with governments is that entities within a single government don't trust each other, <laughs> right? So blockchain can do fantastic things there to streamline government operations and provide more transparency about how the government is operating to its constituents, number one, right? And if constituents can see how the government is operating, so can ultimately other governments actually also see how this government is operating. So so we believe that the adoption of public blockchain will be very incremental, right? And so we're seeing a lot of governments adopting blockchain technology. These are usually private deployments or they're hybrid deployments where they are dipping their toe into the public network, but they're fundamentally private installations that the governments want to control. And this is a means by which they are getting familiar with the technology, learning to understand how it works, getting comfortable with the technology. What we see as a big benefit is, one, it'll streamline operations and make governments more efficient, and two, provide greater transparency for their constituents, right? So talking specifically about what China is building, they're building an open permission blockchain whereby people in China will be able to see birth records directly on the blockchain. They will be able to see university transcripts and records on the blockchain, on these open permission blockchains, which, yes, are controlled by governments. But still, the read access makes it very, very transparent, where I can easily prove that, hey, I got a certificate from this institution. It's on the blockchain. It's right there. Or if there's a death certificate of a loved one, I can show it to my insurance in person. Or you know, if I'm dealing with a deed or property trust, I can prove showing that certificate on the blockchain that, hey, this has been done. So it makes it makes the bureaucracy of government a lot more streamlined because just because it's transparent right it's transparent it's provable it's immutable these are these are great things um, because now once it's on the blockchain you don't have to worry about it being lost or you can't get the information that you need because some stuff shirt behind the counter saying well i'm not going to give that to you because i don't like the way you look right and so we see these problems in developing nations right um, a lot of times where people have a lot of difficulty even getting information from the government. So we believe that blockchain can do a lot uh, to help help in these areas. I mean, I think one of the, the challenges with this idea of blockchain, at least for me, working to create or working as a result of the creation of more transparency is that transparency is not itself a value 
It's what the transparency allows or what it forbids. So for example, transparency allows trust. Transparency forbids bad actors from acting in uh, ways that are manipulative in the sense of doing things that the other party can't see. But of course, part of that value lies in the fact that things like transparency stop or prohibit or become the foundations or basis of things like sanctions or things like financial prohibitions with governments that are bad actors. So transparency itself is the mechanism or the portal, not as I see it, at least the end goal. So for example, transparency into the Chinese government might show that, for example, there are gross human rights violations that might impose sanctions. Blockchain, as you've described it at least, would be a way for people to get around those sanctions and operate in specific ways. Can, Since this is a show on ethics and technology, uh, can you talk a little bit about that kind of, I guess what I'm seeing is a bit of an ethical tension or an ethical problem um, in, in the transparency dimension that you've described? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think that there's any perfect solution here, right? Um, I've always maintained that what we're trying to do is increment our way towards uh, something that's better. And with any new technology, you solve some problems and you introduce new ones, right? I think it just goes back to, again, I keep talking about, I keep kind of hampering on literacy, right? For people to really understand understand how this technology works, what are the pros and what are the cons of it. And so they can participate and make an informed you know, participate in a meaningful way in the technology instead of, you know, having this technology be done to you, become a participant, active participant in this technology and get really informed on what it what it can and cannot do. Uh, definitely, you know, when you talk about countries being able to sidestep sanctions, I, blockchain provides more transparency than paper currency or gold, right? These, these instruments, these financial instruments can be moved without any kind of idea of, of where they're going and how they're and how they're getting from point A to point B. So we'll see, you know, one of the other ethical challenges that I think about a lot are central bank digital currencies, right? Because I've already talked about what I think the government is doing with fiat currency today. Central bank digital currencies now, you know, create these centralized blockchains that governments run and there's central bank digital dollars or digital wands or digital other digital currencies that now enable the government to basically turn the money off with a switch if they wanted to, right? And we saw with the demonetization that happened in India several years ago, it's extremely disruptive and extremely problematic for, for the individual to suddenly have their money. Like, let's not, like, it's like nightmarish, right? If you think about a government's ability to just turn off the money supply if they want to, which is why I think alternatives like public decentralized blockchains become extremely important as we're seeing in some countries like Venezuela, where they're adopting that as a digital currency, where the government has failed them, right? So it, I believe that there are ethical challenges with blockchain, no question about it. Um, but I feel like I've yet to see a perfect solution to any problem, right? I feel like the best we can do is increment our way there and stay informed and do the best we can to try to maintain as much, give as much control to the individual and hope that they will be empowered enough to participate in a, in a meaningful way. I wanted to end by asking you a couple of questions about entrepreneurship and navigating uh, entrepreneurship in, in uh, the context of the tech industry, especially in an industry such as blockchain, which it has been very famously, I think, male dominated. So there's a couple of questions that I have, but you know, as I was reading your 
bio and thinking about today's conversation, my mind floated back to an episode I recorded a couple of months ago titled Intercode, where I spoke to a panel that included women of color, non-binary women, uh, transgender women, women who had taken non-traditional paths, and other persons who talked about the challenges of being underrepresented in tech. Uh, what's your experience? So it's funny. I have pretty much my entire career long as I can remember, I've been like one of the only females in leadership in, in the engineering firm, right? So my experience has been uh, being a woman in technology has had, definitely had challenges, but I found that a lot of the challenges in terms of like, what can I do about my situation as a female in technology, a woman in technology? And I found that, you know, the solutions always started with me. And so I had to find my power. Really, truly, I just had to find my power. And I feel like for women, it's a gender issue. Whenever you are a woman either trying to break through a glass ceiling or a woman that's trying to you know, get gain upward mobility, a lot of times we deal with issues around our own empowerment and our own power. And many times I found when I, when I ran into a problem at, one of, at any one of my you know, opportunities or any one of my jobs, whenever I ran into a problem, as I sat back and I reflected on the outcome of that, I always found that it was just because I didn't take the agency that I already had, that I actually had more agency that I had given myself, that I had given myself, right? And women tend to ask for permission. Men tend to ask for forgiveness. And I think that's a really big difference between, and if you talk about like a, just a gender difference, right? And if I find that us as women, if we just were in a place where, you know, I'm not going to ask for permission, I'm just going to push forward and deal with asking for forgiveness later, we probably would get out of our way a lot more often than not. I was going to say the flip side is that maybe men should ask for permission more <laughs> as well. Yeah, well, definitely that. I, 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 I do agree with that. But I, I think if you, know, if you want to kind of boil it down, I think that's like a big, big difference for women in technology and women in leadership, right? Is this notion of, you know, just take, take your agency, if you don't try the, if you don't ask, the answer is no, right? And if you don't take agency, then if you don't do it, who's going to do it, right? Somebody else is going to do it. So it may as well be me. So that's something that I definitely, I definitely learned that, right? Is like, is that if I should be the one just pushing forward because if I don't do it, someone, no one else will, right? No, one, <laughs> I may as well do it. I mean, there's another dimension to it as well. And I've been thinking about it because one of the central themes around how you describe blockchain in our conversation today is trust. And one definition that you are trying to promote as a definition of how to create trust is to make everything blind, to make everything decentralized, to make it so that the third parties are neutral. Of course, uh, in the context of hiring, there's another definition of trust, which is to say that people tend to trust people in their networks. People tend to trust people who look like or sound like or uh, come from the same kind of background as they do. This is how most hiring works. A while ago, I interviewed for this show, Ketan Anjaria, who's the founder and CEO of an organization called Hire Club. And I asked him what the biggest mistake that new undergraduates would make uh, when they are applying for their first jobs. And do you know what he said to me? He said, the answer is applying for the job. 
because most people don't get jobs by putting a resume through a resume scanner and then getting an interview and then getting hired in the company. Most people get hired because they're in a network where they know somebody and that that network is something that many people leverage to get the good jobs, such as CTO. And, you know, I think that in um, tech, there's certainly such a thing as an old boys club. Certainly when I talk to investors, they say what they're looking for when they invest in somebody is the movie. They look for somebody who looks like the kind of person that has already resulted in a successful investment. So they're looking for the white man who looks like a Mark Zuckerberg coming out of Harvard or a dropout from Stanford. And so I wonder about the kind of advice that you're giving, which I agree with. Women have to step into their power, but of stepping into your power matters much more. And it is much more efficacious if there is a group of people who are already inviting you in. And what I see happening in tech companies is that somebody gets to be CTO because they're the kind of person who is already going out to the bars or is already showing up um, in a kind of you know a friend group um, where they already have that kind of access and where they're already seen as the kind of person who is a CTO as well as the kind of person who is networked and uh, able to show up in certain clubs, so to speak, or at certain events um, and in certain friend setting. Can you speak at all to that dimension of entrepreneurship or how you see that working with the ethos that you're proposing in terms of women stepping into their power? Yeah, definitely. So I can speak about it that way. And I can also speak about it in the context of, you know, even blockchain, right? Absolutely. For in terms of women stepping into their own power, one, you know, if you want to be an entrepreneur, don't be afraid to be an entrepreneur. Number two, don't be afraid to network. Number three, find mentors, even if it's male mentors, right? Mentorship is extremely important in order to succeed in, in industry, right? And so most of the successful female C-suites you see all had mentors. They had mentors within the organization that where they were being kind of pulled up. I, I said this to someone the other day, as I do mentoring, who happened to be a male. I said, it's most people are used to managing down, but it isn't the people that you manage that push you up. It is the people above you that pull you up, right? So you want to speak to people. You want to learn to manage up. You want to learn how to speak to investors. You want to learn how to talk about your successes, we tend to be very self-effacing also, right? We don't like to, I don't know, brag or be boastful or say about all the amazing things that we've done. And you need to get really comfortable about telling people, did you know I did all these great things? Did you know? And really demonstrating our abilities and taking and talking about our wins and, talk, and talking to these individuals that will effectively pull us up, right? Um, and so if you're working as a, as a middle level manager, right, being able to manage up, to have mentors in the organization, to find that executive sponsor, to find that person that is going to help pull you up, I think is incredibly important. And I'm not saying that there is, um, no, that there aren't bad actors in that. There's absolutely bad actors in that too. So you have to be very careful, but I feel like in this day and age today, the current climate is the best it's ever been for women, right? There wasn't a diverse women in, in technology or diversity movement when I was, you know, kind of clawing my way through the ranks, right? I had to 
basically claw my way up in tech and dealt with a lot of challenges in that. But like, these are the things that I learned is that you have to be able to manage up really well. You have to be able to talk about your wins. You can't be afraid to speak your opinions and be extremely direct, right? Um, and get in there and argue and get in there and discuss, right? And talk about ideas and, and be unafraid. And, and in the context of blockchain, What's really cool about blockchain is that it provides a place and a space where you can go out and get grants. Like all these public blockchain protocols are giving away money for people to start building. They're giving away money for, uh, for entrepreneurs to come up with brand new ideas to build in Web3. So there's incredible opportunity for female entrepreneurs, right? And you don't have to be the technologist. You can go find a technologist, right? You can go to a meetup and say, hey, I've got this great idea that I want to build in Web3. How do you feel about co-founding it? Let's go get a grant from this protocol or another protocol and go build something, right? And so it's incredibly empowering because now you don't really have to ask permission from a VC or a venture capitalist to fund you. You can go get that funding directly from these blockchain communities. And I think that's incredibly powerful for women that want to go into entrepreneurship, that individuals that don't have access to venture capital, they can do it this way and incubate something and build something to where they're like, hey, guess what? I've got a thousand users. I've got this great idea and I've built it all by myself. And now you can then start being introduced to launch pads and incubators that can then potentially fund you at the next step. Because one thing that they do love, irrespective of what that CTO looks like, they love it when you have customers and you have demonstrated traction. A uh, non-work-related question. I understand that you are a black belt martial artist. This is really interesting to me because there are a number of people I know who are leaders, thinkers, brilliant philosophers, uh, deeply spiritual people who have connected strongly with martial arts. One of the things I have taken away from this as somebody who's relatively athletic myself is that uh, there are a couple of things that being a martial artist really trains you to do or think about differently. I'll never forget uh, somebody I know who's a remarkable thinker and a leader in his field um, said to me that uh, when he shows up, for his art, which is jujitsu, he gets down on the mat and he reminds himself that, you know, however tough that day was going to be rolling with somebody, he doesn't have to win. It's not a mountain, it's a mat. That's an idea, a philosophy that carries over into his work, that we're not out there to get uh, every single day into achieving excellence or completing something, just are rolling for the day. You just have to get the 250 words out, in my case, as a writer, that you don't have to climb the mountain. You just have to show up and get on the mat. Can you talk a little bit about how martial arts has changed the way that you think as a technologist or as a uh, person in the industry? It's a little hard for me to juxtapose, like to actually talk about, you know, martial arts and, and technology, because I think martial arts for me is fund has fundamentally shifted who I am. It really helped me find my power. It really helped me destroy the enemy within. It helped me get out of my own way. It helped me process an incredible amount of pain and frustration and frankly, anger um, that I had in my life at a point in my life when I really needed to kind of get out of my own way, right? I needed to give myself space. It was something that I did for me. It was really the first thing in my life that I actually truly had ever done for myself. So for me, martial arts, I, you know, in, in terms of technology, what, what I, it's really hard for me to like 
put it in that frame because it's so much, much more than that, right? Technology is something that I do. Being a martial artist is much more about who I am. I don't really identify myself as a technologist. I mean, maybe I should because I've been doing it for so much of my life, right? I'm 53. I've been doing it since I was 12. So yes, for like, you know, 70% of my life, I've been working with technology in one form or another. But martial, like my martial art enabled me to kind of blossom into the person that I was. I don't think if I, if I'd never done it, I wouldn't be where I am today. Really, truly, I wouldn't be where I am today. It's that deep a thing for me. And really, truly, when I go on the mat, yes, it's 100% about showing up. And number two, it's about forgiving and loving yourself. You know, if I, if I, if I didn't do this well today, it's okay. There's always tomorrow. I can, I'll be, but I'm a little bit better for having been here today. It's really about looking at it that way. It's about allowing yourself to, you know, fail and learn and then learn to fail, right? It's, it's all of those things for me, my martial art. And I find this with any person that does martial arts, it gives you exactly what you need, whatever your deficit is, it will find that deficit and it will poke on it. And it doesn't mean it's physical. It could, it's not physical. It could be, it's philosophical, it's spiritual, it's mental, it's emotional. It's all of those things. It's about focus. It's about determination. It's about discipline. It's about never giving up. It's about all of those things. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's kind of like this constant moon, right? That I, it's always there for me. No matter what happens in my life, it's like my North star. One final question. Uh, a lot of the show's listeners include students, folks who stand to be the next generation of humanists and technologists. What kinds of skills or knowledge or understanding should they have if they want to go into the blockchain economy? Well, I think the number one thing they should do is get involved. Number two, I think that the skills that they would develop or that they should definitely have is the ability to participate independently, like to be an independent person of a larger collective, right? So how you can participate in a decentralized community, how you show up, because there isn't going to be anybody telling you what to do, right? So a lot of times we become very, it's very easy to have somebody else tell us who we need to be, what we need to do, what the next step is, what the first step is. And when we do that, when we allow ourselves to be led, we're ultimately giving up control to that person that is leading us. But we can look at that person that is leading us as a mentor or walking side by side with, and we treat them as a mentor so that we can ultimately take agency ourselves and maybe bring somebody else along into the community, but really not to give up that agency, right? Like to own it and have a mentor there that's helping you, but learn how to participate, you know, passionately, independently, and completely in these blockchain communities. I think it's massively important and you don't have to be a technologist. You can participate on the governance, like if political science is what you're interested in, ethics is what you're interested in, you can participate in blockchain governance. There's a whole field around blockchain governance. If you're a technologist, obviously there's a lot of different ways. If you're a writer, there's a, diff there's a different way, a project manager, there's so, like every possible role you can imagine and more is available within the blockchain ecosystem. So participate. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Deb. It was a really stimulating conversation. I enjoyed it.